Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you're looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for the December 29th, 2022 reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Nicola Fortwood. Today we will be reading the following main articles. From the Daily Camera. Library meth test results. Contamination mostly limited to restrooms. Written by Amber Carlson. Marshall Fire remembered. Louisville mom finds joy in the season, but memories still haunt. Written by Andrea Grajeda. Cardiovascular health. Surgeon leads study on longevity of heart valve. Written by Annie Mel. Jehovah's Witnesses Hall suspect. Bombed Union offices before attack. Written by Sam Tabajanek and Shelley Bradbury. And following up with miscellaneous articles. The following main articles from the Longmont Times call. State Legislature. What will Colorado lawmakers do in 2023? Written by Nick Coltrane and Seth Clemen. Travel. Southwest Airlines flight cancellations continue to snowball. Written by David Koenig and Heather Hollingsworth. Immigration. Mexico draws more asylum seekers. Written by Elliot Spaggett. Garage explosion. Please probe possible prior incidents. Written by Mitchell Byers. And following up with miscellaneous articles. From the Daily Camera. Library meth test results. Contamination mostly limited to restrooms. Written by Amber Carlson. The preliminary results from tests conducted last week to assess methamphetamine contamination in the Boulder Public Library main branch suggest the contamination has mostly been limited to public restrooms and exhaust duct services within those areas. According to a city news release, a few locations in heavily trafficked seating areas in the south portion of the building were also found to have limited amount of surface contamination. Sarah Huntley, Director of Communication and Engagement for the City of Boulder, said the city decided to collect samples and look for contamination throughout the library after high meth levels were found in the public restrooms. The city had hired a contractor to test the exhaust vents after receiving reports of people smoking in the library restrooms, and two incidents in which city employees experienced symptoms consistent with the potential exposure to meth residue or fumes after going into the restroom. When you come in the main entrance on the Arapahoe side, on the far west wall, there were a series of booths and tables that people would sit at for pretty long periods of time. 
and that high-traffic seating area is where there was some residue from methamphetamine used on the table, Huntley said. Not that people were using methamphetamine at the table, but we believe that it was brought from their clothing and their skin. The city aims to reopen as much of the facility as possible as soon as it is safe. The release stated the main library, which has been closed since, since December 19th, could open as early as Tuesday, but that all other branches remain open for their planned hours over the New Year's weekend. However, the restrooms and seating areas at the main branch will need to undergo professional remediation before they can be made available again to the public. Huntley said the furnishings in the contaminated seating area will most likely be removed. The furnishings had upholstery on them, which made it very challenging for us to be able to clean them the way they would need to be cleaned, said Huntley. It is not clear yet when or if the public restrooms will open again, but the news release stated that consideration is being given to the level of restroom service the building will need in the future and how to ensure that no illegal activity occurs in these private and enclosed spaces. Meth contamination does not mainly spread via air, according to the release. The bigger danger is residue on surfaces that individuals can touch, which gets onto their skin and clothing and can be transferred to other surfaces. Huntley noted that regulations and standards for meth contamination were developed for residential buildings, such as homes and apartments, particularly those where meth has been manufactured. You're in a public space. You have maybe a brief encounter with a surface that has some residue. You're not in there 24-7 sleeping, breathing, eating the way you are in a residential environment, said Huntley. The methamphetamine contamination standards that Colorado has are based on the residential context. So we are awaiting more guidance from the health officials about how to interpret these test results in our context, which is a very different situation than what the regulations were created for. The city anticipates receiving a full report of the results and findings from the testing contractor by Thursday or Friday. Once the report is available, the city will confer with the health department on plans for remediation, reopening, and ongoing cleaning. The test results are expected to be shared within the next week. Marshall Fire remembered. Louisville mom finds joy in the season, but memories still haunt. Written by Andrea Grajeda. When Gina Leonard opened her front door, only to be greeted by smoke last December 30th, she quickly buckled her two young kids into their car seats, packed weekend bags, and left her Louisville home, all in less than 10 minutes. Leonard, an early childhood mental health consultant for Mental Health Partners in Boulder, was having a normal day the morning the fire erupted. A week before, she found out that she was pregnant again. She and her husband had put their phones away that morning to focus on an important parental duty, potty training their two-year-old. Leonard said that it was not until afternoon nap time when they looked at their phones, filled with messages from friends offering them a place to stay, due to an evacuation that they knew something was badly amiss. Leonard had no idea what they were talking about. She had been too busy being a mom to keep up with the news that morning. Leonard lived in the neighborhood south of Harper Lake that received delayed evacuation notices. After seeing all the messages from friends on their phones, opening the front door to scenes of billowing smoke made frighteningly clear what was happening. 
she and her husband packed their separate cars and left their house on Arapaho Circle. She knew fire would cause smoke, damage to her home, but she did not picture her residence burning down. She said that looking back, she could have taken longer to gather more belongings before evacuating. But she was so panicked that all she could think of was making sure her family was not in danger. Later that day, she saw a video on Instagram of houses in her neighborhood being destroyed, and she knew her home was gone. Dave Hayes, Louisville police chief at the time, confirmed it later. Like many others, Leonard had to focus on survival and stability before she could process the tragedy. Her attention was on her then two- and four-year-old sons, and later her newborn baby. There was this huge pressure to maintain stability and consistency for them, Leonard said during an interview. You don't have time to sit there and cry. Leonard shared that working in early childhood mental health, she knows how important routine and consistency is for kids. She knows that the fire will affect her children, regardless, but that a schedule could help them better cope. Leonard and her husband have had to be dependable and strong for their three children. She has had age-appropriate conversations with her two older children about what happened and honored their emotions throughout the process. The fire is the grief that keeps on giving, Leonard said. Leonard and her husband are in the rebuilding process, and she said she thinks about the fire every day. She can picture a house in immaculate detail that now only exists in her family's memories. There is not one day since the fire that has she that has she not felt the grief or loss of her home. She said that often she does not realize she lost something until she reach, reaches for it instinctively. Earlier this year, her kids suggested that they go sledding. She was excited to go, until she realized that she had no sleds or snow pants. Even small moments like that, she said, become a reminder of what her family lost. Amy Maserazzi, a program director at Boulder Day Nursery, has been friends with Leonard for over 15 years. Maserazzi was there when Leonard found out that her home had burned down. Maserazzi said that there was an overwhelming amount of support for Leonard and her family after the fire. Maserazzi helped her to navigate that support and direct where donations for Leonard could go. And while the support is appreciated, those brand new items are still replacements. For most of us, it's exciting to have all new things, Maserazzi said. But you still have your items that are comfort to you. Leonard said that while the holiday season is like a special kind of torture and a reminder of what she lost, she can still find joy in the season. Her family had just started to develop their own holiday traditions, which were derailed after the fire. They are living in a rental, and she said that it is a huge effort to make the place feel special. Her main focus is rebuilding her home. Returning to the residence was difficult for Leonard at first. Her husband went back the day after the fire and recalls some parts of the home still burning, despite the snowfall that came afterwards. She said that it is disorienting to see the neighborhood. The lack of homes and street signs make it hard to navigate the area. Leonard said that now she visits the lot a couple of times a month. She and her husband are interested in the rebuilding process for their neighbors. She shared that being able to connect with her neighbors, who also lost their homes, has been healing. 
Every windy day is a reminder of the fire, and she finds herself wishing for the ground to have enough moisture to prevent another fire from happening. Leonard said that one of her fears is rebuilding her home just for another fire to take it again. Well, wildfires are becoming more frequent, and the cause of the Marshall Fire has not yet been disclosed, she has to constantly remind herself to be hopeful. It's just a constant effort to remember that we're going to get through this, Leonard said. Cardiovascular health. Surgeon leads study on longevity of heart valve. Results show that catheter-implanted mechanism has longer lifespan. Written by Annie Mel. A first-of-its-kind study, led by a Boulder Community Health cardiovascular surgeon, found that a specific type of heart valve that is implanted using a catheter rather than by open-heart surgery has a slower rate of deterioration, an exciting discovery as the catheter method has become the most common form of aortic valve replacement. Over the past decade, many hospitals have shifted away from surgical aortic valve replacements, which are done through cutting open a patient's chest and now prefer transcatheter aortic valve replacements. Transcatheter valves use a catheter that's fed through a patient's leg and replaces the patient's valve with a sophisticated bioprosthetic valve. The replacement valve widens the valve opening and takes over aortic valve's job of regulating blood flow. There are more valves implanted by catheter than with open surgery because the results have been so good said Daniel O'Hare, cardiovascular surgery program chair at BCH and lead scientist for the study, which was published this month. What's different is, we never knew how long those valves were going to last. Patients want to know, and that's a very important question. Am I going to have to do, have this done again in two more years, or five more years, or ten more years? The international study gave researchers the answers they were seeking and produced promising findings, revealing that deterioration is almost three times higher for surgical valves than for a specific transcatheter aortic valve made by medical device company Medtronic. What data is showing for the very first time in structural valve deterioration is significantly less common in transcatheter valves, which just means better outcomes for the patients longer durability, and it keeps them out of the hospital more, O'Hare said. The study was published December 14th in Journal of the American Medical Association. It documented outcomes for 4,700 patients, collected from December 2010 to June 2016, and analyzed from December 2021 to October 2022 to determine the frequency of structural valve deterioration at five years for those who underwent transcatheter aortic valve replacement and those who underwent surgical aortic valve replacement, the study said. An aortic valve is the most common valve that surgeons replace, O'Hare said. The valve opens to let blood flow from the left ventricle, a large chamber at the bottom of the heart, to the aorta. It also closes to prevent blood from flowing in the wrong direction. The closed valve keeps blood from leaking from the aorta back into the heart. This valve wears out with age, so there is an aging phenomenon, and then there are some people who are born with a minor irregularity in the shape of that valve or the way it's put together, 
which doesn't cause a problem for many, many years. And then in their 60s or so, the valve starts to wear out, O'Hare said. During the study, researchers examined Medtronic's transcatheter aortic valve, which was favored when compared with one other implant in a separate study, O'Hare said. He added that Medtronic's aortic valve is the first catheter implant that has been found to be superior to surgical valves. A spokesperson with Medtronic, who declined to be named for this article, added that this finding will have a major impact on patient choice. This valve, which started as an option for a niche patient population who couldn't undergo surgery, will become the norm for patients needing a heart valve replacement. That's being driven by the data, but also by patient choice, the spokesperson said. It's a much less invasive surgery for patients. Most of the valves implanted through open-heart surgery are similar to each other. But this specific valve, made by Medtronic, is designed differently, O'Hare said. For one, its leaflets, the parts that open and close, are situated higher than those on other valves, allowing for a larger opening and more blood flow. They are also made out of very thin pig tissue. Additionally, the frame that contains the leaflets is made of nitinol, which comprises nickel and titanium. This material is unique for its strength and moldable characteristics. When the frame is cold, it can be bent, but when warmed, it immediately returns to its original shape. This allows it to be made small, inserted into the body, then resume its original shape. A commonly used surgical valve also has leaflets, which are made of bovine tissue, but unlike Medtronic's valve, its shape cannot be altered, O'Hare said. Since O'Hare began using transcatheter aortic valves in 2010, he has implanted about 2,000, he said. This type of valve is generally given to someone 65 or older, but O'Hare said he has used this approach on a patient as young as 46. If we can get 15 years out of these things, I think that will be a huge step forward for many patients. And I do think that the age of implant will continue to come down, he said. O'Hare said the oldest data recorded on this specific valve looks at its durability about nine years after implementation. He added more studies are to come as hospitals continue using this method of aortic valve replacement. I think that we've learned from the design of this transcatheter valve is going to translate into better system, systems and better valves for open-heart surgery, as well because the transcatheter valve is so unique and this data is so unique, O'Hare said. I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned to improve the other valves that we use for implants. Jehovah's Witnesses Hall Suspect Bombed Union Offices Before Attack Police were warned about man's threats one year prior. Written by Sam Tabashnik and Shelley Bradbury. The man who attempted to bomb a Jehovah's Witnesses worship hall in Thornton before killing himself and his wife on Christmas Day also bombed a union office that morning, Thornton police said Wednesday. Enoch Apodaca, 50, 46, carried out the attacks, even though authorities were warned more than a year ago about the man's violent threats and bomb-making history, the Denver Post found. Apodaca caused a large explosion at the IBEW Local Union 68 building in the 5600 block of Logan Street 
in North Washington around 8.45 a.m. Sunday before moving on to attack the Jehovah's Witnesses Kingdom Hall at 951 Milky Way in Thornton minutes later, police said. Investigators say Abadaka walked into the IBEW Local Union 68 with what appeared to be a bucket around 8.45 a.m. He then left the building, got back into his vehicle, and a large explosion was observed in the building, police said. No one was injured in the bombing, though firefighters and sheriff deputies responded to the explosion. Apodaca continued on to the worship hall. Around 9 a.m., he directed his wife, Melissa Martinez, 44, to back a pickup truck up to a window at Kingdom Hall. Apodaca broke the window with a hammer and put three pipe-bomb-style explosive devices inside. Martinez got out of the truck, and Apodaca shot his wife in the back of the head with a shotgun, then shot himself with the same gun, police said. Both died. The bombs inside the meeting hall did not explode, and only two people were inside at the time. One used a fire extinguisher to put out a fire that had started near the devices, police said. Investigators later found that one device nearly detonated before it was either extinguished or malfunctioned. That device was attached to a bucket that was similar to the one used in the Union office bombing, police said. When officers searched the couple's home in the Highview mobile home community in Westminster, they found the couple's belongings had been set out and clearly marked to be distributed to specific family members, Thornton police said. Investigators also found bomb-making materials, but no additional explosive devices. A local 68 union representative declined comment when contacted Tuesday and Wednesday. The married couple were former members of the Jehovah Witnesses congregation, Norton Police previously said. The attacks were motivated by personal issues between the couple and the targeted businesses, police said. Apodaca had reached out to a member of the Kingdom Hall congregation about rejoining the community on Christmas Eve. That member directed Apodaca to the community's elders, police said. Westminster police were warned more than a year ago that Apodaca had threatened the Kingdom Hall congregation and was known to make bombs, according to police records obtained Wednesday by the Denver Post. Apodaca also previously threatened to shoot his wife and a union representative after he was fired from his job as an electrician in 2021, his former employer alleged in separate court filings. Westminster police records show a concerned caller warned police on September 13, 2021, that Apodaca was threatening violence, using drugs, and withdrawing from his family after he and his wife were fired from their jobs. He said people were going to pay and there is going to be carnage, the police call taker noted. The caller told police that Apodaca had been kicked out of the Kingdom Hall congregation three years before, that he was very intelligent and manipulative, and that he threatened to make bombs. Caller is concerned that something is going to occur that could be prevented, the call taker noted. It was not immediately clear Wednesday whether Westminster police actually sent an officer to check on Apodaca that night. Police records show an officer was dispatched for a welfare check at 7.02 p.m. on September 13, 2021, and that the officer cleared or ended the call at 7.26 p.m. 
but it does not show that the officer actually arrived at Apodaca's house. Westminster Police did not return a request for comment Wednesday. Records show Westminster Police received seven calls for service to Apodaca's address since September 2021, including two welfare checks and one report of harassment. For the three calls for service reports provided to the Denver Post, Westminster Police had no records that the cases progressed past the initial call. In addition to those incidents, Apodaca also made threats after he was fired from his job as an electrician in 2021, according to an application for a civil protection order filed in December 2021 by a representative of Apodaca's former employer, Sturgeon Electrical Company, Inc., where Apodaca worked on and off as a union contractor for years. Apodaca told a union representative at the Local 68 that he would shoot the representative, Apodaca's wife, and then will come after the people's responsible for firing him, the protection order application alleges. A company representative at the time wrote that Apodaca had been fired in June 2021. The temporary protection order application does not say why Apodaca was fired, and a company representative declined to comment Wednesday. It was not clear from court records whether the request for a protection order was granted. There's also no evidence in court records that anyone pursued an extreme risk protection order against Apodaca under the state's red flag law, which allows authorities to confiscate a person's guns under some circumstances. Family members of Apodaca and Martinez either could not be reached or declined to comment Wednesday. The dead couple were identified Wednesday by the Office of the Coroner of Adams and Broomfield Counties. Colorado Bureau of Investigation records show Apodaca was arrested in 2003 on a felony theft charge. He was accused of taking a laptop and other property from his then-wife while the two were in the process of divorcing, according to a criminal complaint. The case was ultimately dismissed by the district attorney's office. There are no obituaries today in the Daily Camera. And from the Longmont Times call, State Legislature, what will Colorado lawmakers do in 2023? Democrats hold big majorities, but don't expect them to run roughshod, said Senate leader Steve Fenberg. Written by Nick Coltrane and Seth Klaman. When Colorado lawmakers return to the Capitol in early January, a breath-busting list of issues awaits them. A tighter budget, lingering fears of a coming recession, a growing housing crunch, an unpredictable U.S. Supreme Court, crime concerns, and competing priorities will test Colorado lawmakers in the coming season. Democrats won big in November, but even the mandate they wield has conflicting interpretations. As rank-and-file legislatures and leaders finalize their bills and weigh the latest economic forecasts, here are some of the pressures that await them in 2023. Democrats wield historic majorities. State Representative Mike Lynch, a Wellington Republican and leader of his caucus and his members, most of whom are freshmen, will be representing their constituents from a super-minority position in the chamber. We're realistic about the fact that we've got to work with the majority if we want to get anything done, Lynch said. But that's not anything new. Lynch is optimistic that brutal margins for his party don't mean a complete sidelining. 
He called Democratic leadership gracious in his early conversations with them. In particular, Democrat leaders appreciate his caucus explicitly rural perspective and that some of the biggest challenges facing the state, water chiefly, run through their districts, he said. I believe at the top of their leadership, they're serious about getting serious things done for the state, Lynch said. I haven't seen anything not in good fashion from them so far. Lynch does acknowledge that his party's position doesn't mean they'll always get what they want. But he's hopeful they'll at least have a voice in the discussions. And as his number two, Colorado Springs Representative Rose Pulick, Pugliese notes, each of the members also brings their own mandates from their constituents. The bipartisan pre-session camaraderie was echoed by Democratic leadership in the Senate. At a recent town hall with constituents, Senate President Steve Fenberg, a Boulder Democrat, acknowledged huge major- majorities for his party in the upcoming session. But that doesn't mean Democrats are just going to run roughshod over everybody and do whatever we want, he said. Instead, he called it a mandate to continue governing in a small and progressive way, like we have been over the last couple of years. Polis, unafraid of veto threats, will loom. While lawmakers debate among themselves, they'll also be navigating Governor Jared Polis's preferences. Just last year, lawmakers said his veto threats ended efforts to create age-restricted assault weapon purchases and slow rent increases for mobile homeowners. Both of those policy objectives, gun and rent control, are likely to return this year. But Polis will now be working with a nearly veto-proof Democratic majority. Whether the more progressive or moderate flank carries a mandate, and how leadership handles its members and the governor, will be a key story of this session. Under threat of veto last session, State Representative Andrew Bosnecker pulled a rent stabilization provision from a larger package aimed at helping mobile park, mobile home park residents. While work on affordable housing remains a priority, Bosnecker of Fort Collins said he wasn't able to find common ground with the governor's office to bring back the provision this upcoming year. But he characterized it as part of a collaborative process with different backgrounds, philosophies, and constituent desires. We all have our job to do, right? Bosnecker said. The first floor, where the governor's office and staff are, has its job to do. The House has its job to do. The Senate has its job to do. None of us should shy away from those responsibilities. Big plans, tight wallets. Senator Rachel Zenzinger, an Arvada Democrat who chairs the powerful Joint Budget Committee, said she has already told members of the Senate's Democratic Caucus to brace for a difficult year. Policies, not new programs, should be their priority, she said. It'll be incumbent on us to continue that conversation, to keep trying to educate our colleagues on the situation and how the budget works and why we're in this situation, she said. Then hopefully people will be more understanding about we just are not able to fund everything this year. Colorado won't have the deluge of federal funding that padded the budget in recent years now that the federal response to the COVID-19 emergency has virtually ended. While lawmakers continue to tout the state's economic strength, they also note that keeping up with inflation alone will chew up any growth in the funding. 
toss in warnings of a recession, and a resulting focus on state reserves, and there's not much money for big new programs. Instead, expect lawmakers to cultivate the programs they've launched under the recent and continuing Democratic trifecta. Those include universal kindergarten and preschool, the Behavioral Health Administration, and the Colorado Option, all of which either recently launched or are in the process of it. A lot of those policies that haven't actually been implemented yet, Zengzinger said of programs established by recent legislation. They've been enacted, but they haven't really started yet, right? And so now they're now that we're getting them off the ground, we are experiencing some bumps. The push and pull of criminal justice. Expect Democrats to continue to look for the balance they seek with criminal penalties while not over-policing Coloradans. Polis has already asked a state commission to stiffen penalties for car thieves, something that legislatures may take up as well. Meanwhile, lawmakers are also looking to reignite efforts around regulations for law enforcement. A bill to limit law enforcement's ability to lie to children fell last session. Representative Judy Amabile is sponsoring a bill to limit the use of met metal restraints in Colorado prisons. Regulations governing no-knock warrants may return. A year after a bipartisan group of state officials called them undesirable and that they should be avoided. Representative Jennifer Bacon, a Denver Democrat, has also said that legislature may take action related to Miranda rights after the U.S. Supreme Court hollowed out civil liability penalties earlier this year. Republican lawmakers had planned to circle back and attempt to further tighten drug possession penalties this year, but their losses in both chambers have placed law enforcement groups in a more defensive posture. Last year's extensive fight over fentanyl legislation was divisive and bruising, and its memory may well make legislatures wary of jumping back into a similar fight so soon, particularly as their latest change is still being implemented. Lynch was an architect of the fentanyl bill last year, but removed his name from sponsorship in protest of penalties he saw as too weak to address the problem. While he argues the ongoing crisis proves too little has been done, it can also be hard for lawmakers to shift course especially if too little time has passed to truly determine a policy's effectiveness. I don't know that we're given the proper amount of time for the new fentanyl law to play out, but I don't see that not continuing to be the forefront of the Judiciary Committee because we're still losing people, Lynch said. Democrats play defense against a conservative U.S. Supreme Court. State Democrats already proved prescient with a move last legislative session to enact a law protecting the right to an abortion in Colorado, just months before the High Court repealed the constitutional protections to the procedure established in Roe v. Wade. Advocates are planning a ballot measure in 2024 to enshrine abortion access in the Constitution, a push that may also include an effort to end the prohibition on state money being used for the service. But it's not the only shifting constitutional ground lawmakers may have to navigate. Shortly before the election, Bacon ticked off affirmative action, protecting undocumented immigrants who arrived in the country as children, commonly known as dreamers, and marriage equality as issues Colorado leaders may need to take up because of signals from the court. 
Colorado still has a constitutional amendment banning gay marriage, passed by the voters in 2006. It's essentially moot now because of a 2015 U.S. Supreme Court decision, but the lack of statutory or constitutional protections in Colorado has given activists pause in light of the court's more, more recent moves. There is certainly interest in addressing the constitutional provision, even in the wake of the federal passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, and a coalition reportedly began to take shape in late summer. Affordable housing. Traditionally, housing policy has been largely left for local governments to address. But given the scale and consistency of the problem across the state, the legislature may play a larger role in the issue going forward. There's a big debate about local control when it comes to land use at the local level, Fenberg said. At what point is it appropriate to give cities the authority to do what they want to do? And at what point does the state say, this is a statewide problem and we need to intervene? Rent control or stabilization, in some form or another, remains one of the most controversial policy options, and multiple housing advocates told The Post they expect the issue to resurface this year. But Polis's known opposition gives it a difficult path forward. Zenziger called it a non-starter for the governor. Representative-elect Javier Mabre, a Denver Democrat and eviction defense attorney, said that housing may well be the number one priority for House Democrats this year. He said lawmakers should look at just cause eviction, meaning legislation that would prevent evictions unless for a good reason, like illegal conduct or not paying rent. Pugliese, the assistant House minority leader, noted the Republican caucus caucus's emphasis on protecting local control for building codes. In particular, she noted her party's opposition to regulations they argue drive up housing costs, and those will hit municipal pocketbooks in a time of tight budgets. There will definitely be some areas where we cannot find common ground, but that's where I hope we'll find true civil discourse and an opportunity to discuss different perspectives, she said. Education funding. For more than a decade, Colorado has underfunded K-12 education compared to what the state constitution requires. Last year, lawmakers celebrated a historic buy-down of the deficit, officially known as the budget stabilization factor. Just a few years after the deficit topped $1 billion, they had slashed it to $321 million. But with inflation and general economic uncertainty casting a pall over budget forecasts, hopes of erasing the deficit completely have doled. Zenzinger called ending the deficit probably my number one priority. But even if lawmakers erase it this year, she worries too much money too fast could, lead, could just lead to whiplash of renewed cuts if the funding isn't sustainable. We just can't, quite frankly, buy it down as quickly as we want to because we feel like stability and funding schools at a level in which they can count on is also really important, she said. You can't raise teachers' salaries on one-time money. So if we put it in one year and we can't cover it the next year, then we just have to take it away. Travel. Southwest Airlines' flight cancellations continue to snowball. Written by David Koenig and Heather Hollingsworth, The Associated Press, Dallas. 
Travelers who counted on Southwest Airlines to get them home suffered another wave of canceled flights Wednesday, and pressure grew on the federal government to help customers get reimbursed for unexpected expenses they incurred because of the airline's meltdown. Exhausted Southwest travelers tried finding seats on other airlines or renting cars to get to their destination, but many remained stranded. The airline's CEO said it could be next week before the flight schedule returns to normal. Adontis Barber, a 34-year-old jazz pianist from Kansas City, Missouri, had camped out in the city's airport since his Southwest flight was canceled Saturday, and wondered if he'd ever get to a New Year's gig in Washington D.C. "I give up," he said. "I'm starting to feel homeless." By early afternoon on the East Coast, about 90% of all canceled flights Wednesday in the U.S. were on Southwest, according to the Flight Aware tracking service. Other airlines recovered from ferocious winter storms that hit large swaths of the country over the weekend, but not Southwest, which scrubbed 2,500 flights Wednesday and 2,300 more on Thursday. The Dallas airline was undone by a combination of factors, including an antiquated crew scheduling system and a network design that allows cancellations in one region to cascade throughout the country rapidly. Those weaknesses are not new. They helped cause a similar failure by Southwest in October 2021. The federal government is now investigating what happened at Southwest, which carries more passengers within the United States than any other airline. In a video that Southwest posted late Tuesday, CEO Robert Jordan said Southwest would operate a reduced schedule for several days, but hoped to be back on track before next week. Jordan blamed the winter storm for snarling the airline's highly complex network. He said Southwest's tools for recovering from disruptions work 99% of the time, but clearly we need to double down on upgrading systems to avoid a repeat of this week. We have some real work to do in making this right," said Jordan, a 34-year Southwest veteran who became CEO in February. For now, I want you to know that we are committed to that. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who has criticized airlines for previous disruptions, said that meltdown was the only word he could think of to describe this week's events at Southwest. He noted that while cancellations across the rest of the industry declined to about four percent of scheduled flights, they remained above sixty percent at Southwest. From the high rate of cancellations to customers' inability to reach Southwest on the phone, the airline's performance has been unacceptable, Buttigieg said. He vowed to hold the airline accountable and push it to reimburse travelers. They need to make sure that those stranded passengers get to where they need to go, and that they are provided adequate compensation, including for missed flights, hotels, and meals. He said Wednesday on ABC's Good Morning America. On its website, Southwest told customers affected by canceled or delayed flights between December 24th and January 2nd to submit receipts. The airline said, "We will honor reasonable requests for reimbursement for meals, hotel, and alternate transportation." Navy Physician Lieutenant Commander Manohoy Matthew said, after spending hours on hold over two days, Southwest reimbursed him for the first leg of his family's trip from Washington to Houston. They drove through terrible weather after the December 23rd flight was canceled. Now he is worried whether Southwest will operate the return flight Sunday. I'm trying to reach other airlines," he said. "There are no flights. Plus, it's very expensive for us." 
Leaders of Southwest labor unions have warned for years that the airline's crew scheduling system, which dates to the 1990s, was inadequate. And the CEO acknowledged this week that the technology needs to be upgraded. The other large U.S. airlines use hub-and-spoke networks in which flights radiate out from a few major or hub airports. That helps limit the reach of disruptions caused by bad weather in part of the country. Southwest, however, has a point-to-point network in which planes crisscross the country during the day. This can increase the utilization and efficiency of each plane. But problems in one place can ripple across the country and leave crews trapped out of position. Those issues don't explain all the complaints that stranded travelers made about Southwest, including no ability to reach the airline on the phone and a lack of help with hotels and meals. Teal Williams, a 48-year-old active-duty Army reservist from Utah, was stuck at the Denver airport with her husband and two teenage kids on Christmas Day after their flight to Des Moines, Iowa, was canceled. She said Southwest employees had no information about flights and didn't offer food vouchers while elderly passengers sat in wheelchairs for hours and mothers ran out of formula for their infants. It was just imploding, and no one could tell you anything, Williams said. The airline employees were desperately trying to help, but you could tell they were just as clueless as everybody else. It was scary. Unable to find plane, train, or bus seats, Williams and her family felt lucky to score a rental car. They drove 12 hours to Iowa. Barber, the musician from Kansas City, already missed a performance Sunday in Dallas, but had hoped to make it to Washington in time for a New Year's performance near the National Mall. I'm missing out on money, he lamented. Immigration. Mexico Draws More Asylum Seekers. Written by Elliot Spaggett, the Associated Press. Tijuana, Mexico. Albert Rivera knows well how dangerous Mexico can be. He sometimes wears a bulletproof vest around the compound of bright yellow buildings that he built into one of the nation's largest migrant shelters. His phone stores more evidence in the form of stomach-churning videos that gangs sent migrants to warn of consequences for disobeying demands. The images include severed limbs being thrown in a pile, a decapitated head getting tossed in a barrel of steaming liquid, and a woman squirming while her head is sawed off. But across town from the Agape Mission Mundial Shelter, Many migrants are grateful for a chance to settle here. That's where Mexico's asylum office greets foreigners who consider the border city of Tijuana a relatively safe place to live with an abundance of jobs. The jarring contrast speaks to Mexico's conflicted status. It is a country where violence and inequality chase many people to seek a better life in the United States. For others, it offers a measure of peace and prosperity beyond what's available in their homelands. A safe, robust asylum system in Mexico eases pressure on the United States, which is looking more to other governments to manage migration. A U.S. Supreme Court ruling issued Tuesday kept pandemic-era limits on asylum in place for now. Mexico was the world's third most popular destination for asylum seekers in 2021, after the United States and Germany, according to the United Nations. It's on pace to end the year just below an all-time high of 131,400 asylum claims in 2021, led by Hondurans, Cubans, and Haitians. Juan Pablo Sanchez, 24, followed others who left Colombia in the last two years after struggling financially as an organizer of cultural events. For him, Tijuana is a better option than the United States. He pays $250 a month in rent, far less than a friend who pays $1,800 for a similar place in Illinois. Pay is lower in Mexico, 
but jobs are plentiful, including in export-driven manufacturing plants. Lower expenses mean more money to send his wife and stepson in Pereira, a city in a coffee-growing region of the Andean foothills. The fruit of my work is seen in Colombia, he said, after riding a motorcycle he uses for a messenger job to the Tijuanan asylum office. Making a living in the United States is precarious. Mexico granted 61% of asylum requests from January through November, including at least 90% approvals for Hondurans and Venezuelans. Cubans and Haitians are far less successful. The U.S. grant rate was 46% in the physical year that ended September 30th. That figure is below Mexico's rate, but up from 27% two years ago, when the administration of former U.S. President Donald Trump sharply limited relief for victims of gang and domestic violence, according to data from the Syracuse University's Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse. Mexico abides by the Cartagena Declaration, which promises a safe haven to anyone threatened by a generalized violence, foreign aggression, internal conflicts, mass violation of human rights, or other circumstances which have seriously disturbed public order. The U.S. observes a narrow definition that requires a person to have been individually targeted for limited reasons, as spelled out in the U.N. Refugee Convention. Mexico's relatively generous criteria carry little weight in Rivera's shelter, where roughly 500 guests seldom venture far beyond a neighborhood store. The Puerto Rican pastor grew up in Los Angeles and ran a home in Tijuana for recovering drug addicts before converting it to a migrant shelter in 2018. He says gunmen once burst inside looking for a woman who was hiding elsewhere. Maria Rosario Blanco, 41, came with her sister and eight-year-old grandnephew, who was hot riding on the back of his father's motorcycle in the Honduran capital of Tegucigalpa in 2019, when an assailant fatally shot his father. Blanco's nephew was killed a year later while working at his barber shop. The family finally left when a flood destroyed their home. Blanco said gangs regularly threatened to kill or kidnap her, even after she moved to another part of Honduras. And to Palenque in southern Mexico, a town known for Mayan ruins, she says she won't feel safe until reaching the United States, where she hopes to settle in a Chicago suburb with a man she met through church. The gangs are everywhere, she said, describing fears about Mexico. She said Hondurans are easy targets for assailants for how they speak. A Mexico woman who spoke on condition of anonymity. For safety reasons, said her troubles began when a brother joined a gang under threats to his family, but they killed him anyway. Then her 15-year-old son joined the gang to save his family. They don't know where he is, but received a photo of him with an assault rifle. The new rule is that people are obligated to join the gang. She said, "If you refuse, it doesn't matter. They kill you either way." The gang burned their house in a small village, in Mikohakan State. Stole their farmland and threatened to kill the entire family if her husband and 12-year-old son didn't join. They hope for an exemption to the U.S. asylum ban, which was kept alive at least a few months under Tuesday's five-to-four Supreme Court ruling. Justices will hear arguments in February on so-called Title 42 authority, which will remain in force until they decide the case. Under Title 42, migrants have been denied a chance at asylum 2.5 million times since March 2020 on grounds of preventing spread of COVID-19. Some exceptions are made those deemed particularly vulnerable in Mexico. 
Amid anticipation that Title 42 was about to end, some advocates expected the Biden administration to revive a Trump policy, temporarily blocked in court, that denied asylum to non-Mexicans if they did not first apply in a country they traveled through, like Mexico. Maureen Meyer, the Washington office for Latin America's vice president for programs, said Mexico might agree to lesser steps, like more enforcement within its own borders or admitting some migrants who are ordered to leave the United States. Under Title 42, Mexico has taken back migrants from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and more recently Venezuela, as well as people from Mexico. While some asylum seekers in Mexico get permits to travel within the country, they generally must stay in the state where they apply, Meyer said. Seven of every ten apply in Chiapas State, bordering Guatemala, where jobs are scarce. Jobs are abundant in Tijuana, but the city's Mexican Commission for Refugee Aid Office is relatively small. One Venezuelan who visited the office after being expelled from the United States under Title 42 said Mexico was ten times better than home. Migrants arrive fatigued, said Efren Gonzalez, director of the commission's Tijuana office. They stop and plan their next steps, and I think Tijuana is a good place to do that. Garage Explosion. Police probe possible prior incidents. Written by Mitchell Byers. Longmont police are looking into whether an explosion on Placer Avenue that injured three people was the second such incident at the address. Longmont police say the explosion was reported at 9 p.m. Monday in the 100 block of Placer Avenue. Crews arrived and found a garage fully engulfed in flames. An adjacent home was also damaged in the explosion and subsequent fire. Two men were able to escape the blast, and a third man was removed from the garage by the other men before crews arrived on the scene. Longmont Public Safety spokesperson Robin Erickson said one man sustained serious injuries and was taken to Longmont United Hospital, but later transferred to a Denver-area facility due to the extent of his injuries. Police did not have an update on the man's condition Wednesday. The two other men were taken by private vehicle to a Longmont-area hospital with unknown injuries. Erickson said the cause of the explosion remains under investigation and that officials anticipate releasing more information in mid-January. Members of the Boulder County Bomb Squad were on the scene Tuesday. But Erickson did say police are looking into the possibility that there was a similar explosion at the same address, though police did not say when the incident might have occurred. And from the obituaries, Sharon Elaine Vino, October 11, 1956 to December 13, 2022. Sharon Elaine Venno was born in Longmont, Colorado, on October 11, 1956, along with her twin sister Cheryl, to Melvin and Helen Enoch. Sharon succumbed to cancer on December 13, 2022. Sharon was preceded in death by her parents, Melvin and Helen Enoch, her brother-in-law Christian Slattendale, and Barry Tennis. Sharon is survived by her son, Benjamin Enoch Venno, her sisters, Arlene L. Tennis, Shirley E. Alexander, Louis H. Wass, her twin sister, Cheryl E. Slattendale, and her brother-in-law, Stephen C. Alexander. Also surviving are her nieces, nephews, great-nieces and nephews, and great-great-nephews. A memorial for Sharon will be held on Saturday, December 31st at 2 p.m. at the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses, 1531 Vista View Drive, Longmont, Colorado, 80504. Thank you for joining us for the reading of the Boulder Daily Camera, the Longmont Times Call, and the Colorado Daily. 
My name is Nicola Fordwood. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.